glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand if you would please. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 17 through 19. This is the law in the Old Testament that's going to bring us to our message in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords a great, a mighty, and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now to Luke chapter 7, if you would. We're going to look at one of these strangers who was living in the midst of the nation of Israel in Capernaum. And someone, as we've already said, the Lord will commend greatly. But you'll notice the emphasis on the law is that God is not a respecter of persons, meaning he says you're going to have people that come in among you and they're not going to have the advantages that some of you have. A stranger doesn't have, have you ever heard of home field advantage? <laughs> you've done anything in athletics, there's a home field advantage. So when, you're, when you are from somewhere, around here in politics, there's supposed to be a home field advantage. You're born and raised, that gives you home field. Are you with me? Well, I lived in Middle Tennessee for years, and we came from the state of Indiana. Now, my kinfolk were from Tennessee and Kentucky, but my grandpa had moved to Indiana for work, thus I was born there. But all my blood kindred were in Tennessee, so we moved from Indiana to Tennessee, and we lived there eight and a half years, and we were strangers the whole time we lived there. It was a it was a, an Appalachian community, and it was, you're not from here, are you? And I tried my best to talk like them and walk like them and act like them, and uh, you weren't from there. That's the idea of a stranger. You had Israel with God's laws and God's worship and all that went on, and Strangers would come in and God said, you remember, they're at a disadvantage. They don't have the familiarity you do. And you remember you were a stranger in Egypt and don't treat them like you were treated in Egypt. So the idea of disadvantage and God not being a respecter of persons, the emphasis is, is on the justice and the equity of God's character, that he will respond in justice and equity, uh, whether it's a widow or a fatherless child, someone who's weak and disadvantaged or a stranger, And so then we're going to see that demonstrated here in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Don't don't miss that phrase. The Jewish leadership is saying he deserves a miracle. Verse 5, For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, 
I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that, uh, they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Thank you. You may be seated. How many have ever heard this term? Bear with me for just a minute. We're going to try to follow the leadership of the Lord as he directs the theme of this message this morning. Have you ever have heard of pork in politics? Okay, so you have things attached to legislation that are special favors for constituents. That's the best way I know to say it. Uh, and you have, how many have heard of, um, uh, we've heard of lobbyists. Yeah, you get lobbyists who come and they get special interest groups. And what happens is if you can build a big enough lobby, you can get the ear of a senator or a representative or better yet, a group of them. If you can get the ear of a caucus, hey, you're getting somewhere now. And if they can see that you represent enough of the populace that they should have an interest in your cause, and they're not all corrupt, all politicians. I believe that. We'll move on so we don't have too much disagreement this morning. It's true. But the fact is there's so much corruption because of favors being done. This person deserves this favor. They pay this amount of taxes. They have this business going. They, have, they employ this many people in their company. You, you with me? That's how Capernaum operated. You can see that this morning. When God wrote the laws on, on the fatherless and the stranger and the widow, he was writing against such things. Because what happens is, is there, there ends up being, if there's not intentional opposition to it, there ends up being advantage taken of those who are at disadvantage or that are vulnerable, the stranger is more vulnerable, generally speaking. He's unfamiliar with his territory. You can take advantage of him saying, oh, well, if you live here, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and uh, you can take advantage. The widow who doesn't have a husband uh, to, to watch out for her financial interests can have land grabs taken, and all these things can happen. Fatherless children are often without a proper role model in their life, someone to discipline and correct and nurture them as they should be. A mother trying to be dad and mom both is not do a tremendously good job. We're told today, now nah, you can raise a kid without a wife, without a husband. God intended a mom and dad to raise kids, amen? Uh, and we, we are the ones who messed that up, not God. And so having said all that, those folks are at distinct disadvantages, just as the blind, because he can't see. Yeah, we call it to, to have a disability, to be disabled in some way, either economically or financially or physically or emotionally or mentally. And, uh, and so the Lord took special note and he said, look, there, these, these classes of people that often may be ignored. So, for instance, Jesus gave a parable of an unjust judge and a widow was appealing to him. But because she continued to appeal, he finally listened to her. But the point would be, he didn't care. He was unjust. He didn't care about a cause of a widow. What does she have to offer? Right? That's human nature. But when the Lord Jesus came, do you know who had Jesus' attention most of the time? We, we know this last week. People that could not get the attention of anybody else. He said, suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not. And I'll tell you something. In ministry, and I've said this before and I'll continue to say it, and this is what I love about ministering to children. They bring really no advantage to a ministry. They have to be governed. They have to be supervised. Um, they have great incomes whereby they can support the offerings, Right? I remember when we first started running our bus ministry. We didn't know we had to paint the bus, and the state trooper pulled us over and says, what, what are you doing? So we're transporting kids back and forth to church. What? You're doing what? So we're transporting kids back and forth to church. Well, why is your bus yellow? It's got to be painted. I said, I didn't realize that. Well, paint your bus. And he said, no, certainly you're getting paid for this service. I said, no, no, no. 
We're in the red on this. I mean, we put fuel in the bus, we feed the kids, and nobody pays anything. No, no we don't get paid. Well, you're paid a salary, aren't you? Well, not necessarily for driving a bus and taking kids to church, but no, this is not a paid service. This is a ministry. Couldn't understand it. Good, good trooper, but he couldn't understand what we were doing. Oh, how would you do this and not get paid? But the Lord Jesus gave himself to children. Gave time. He had time when they were brought to him. The Bible says he took them up in his arms and blessed them. And not because he was running for an office either. <laughs> his disciples wouldn't have time for that. He had time for cripples. Our family looked, we're going through the miracles of the Lord Jesus right now in family devotions. And we looked this week at the man who lay at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. 38 years he couldn't find one person kind enough to put him in the water when the angel moved the waters. And he comes along, Jesus said, wilt thou be made whole? And he said, well, nobody will put me in when the water is moved. He said, rise up and walk. <laughs> Who needs to be put in the water? I tell you, get up, right? Uh, he spent his time. Can you imagine being around the pool of Bethesda? Do you know what kind of people went there? The halt, the maimed, the blind, the crippled. People that were the societal outcast, if you would. Today, we have as much spiritual handicap and mental and emotional handicap as we do physical. In our nation, where there's not as much physical handicapping as you may see in a third world country because of some of our laws and some of these things. There are physical handicap. Don't misunderstand me. But today, those who've been abused and destroyed through sin and their emotions and their minds and even their bodies many times are marred because of, of sinful living. Yet, I believe this. They can have the grace of God. But they're going to have to get it the way this man got it. Any person that wants the grace of God can have the grace of God. The only exception I can find for that is the person who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God. And we'll not go into that this morning. But outside of that, God's grace has at some point in time been extended to that person or they couldn't have blasphemed the Holy Ghost. You don't call someone a liar you've never been introduced to. Amen? Blasphemy the Holy Ghost is in essence to speak evil of the Holy Spirit of God with your tongue to speak evil of Him as the... The, they did of the Lord of the Holy Spirit when they accused Jesus of casting out devils through the prince of the devils. And so having said all of that, here we are in Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. I, uh, and I want to focus in on this man, give us four things about this centurion this morning to show us the equity of the Lord Jesus Christ in ministering the grace of God, but especially how can we and what can we learn from the centurion if we want the same grace in our lives ministered to us and what we see physically done here Perhaps, the Lord, we need something physical, but more important, the physical is always the spiritual. How do we access the God's, gra God's grace? What does faith look like? And this man shows us. We might think that faith would be demonstrated. I mean, there's some great miracles in the Bible. In Luke chapter 7, uh, the next miracle that takes place is the raising of the dead of this, this widow's son in name. That's actually a greater miracle than the healing of the servant. Wouldn't you say bringing someone back from the dead is better than making someone better that's sick? A doctor can make a sick person better, but they can't raise people from the dead. So I would think that the widow of Nain would require more faith, and yet it's very difficult even to find her faith. <laughs> the centurion's faith is not gauged by what the size of what he accomplished, but by the attitude he had toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He had absolute confidence in Jesus Christ, and that is what it takes today to be a, a recipient of the grace of God. And the needs in this room this morning are going to be different. Some are in need of the grace of God 
to pardon your sins, to make you his child because you are by nature a child of disobedience. There's very possibly people in this room who've never received eternal life, never trusted Christ to save you from your sins and make you his child. He can do that for you today. That's God's grace. You may be saved today as a child of God. You still need God's grace as much as the day he pardoned your sins. You may need the grace of God to overcome some spiritual affliction in your life, some temptation. You may be going through a trial and need God's grace to keep your faith strengthened. But my point is, it's always obtained the same way. And so then, let's let's look at these verses here in Luke 7 again. Verse 1, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. I've dealt with this. If you're keeping an outline, we'll call this in first three verses the centurion's concern. His concern is about his servant. We can see that the problem is that the servant is sick. The Bible says it's a serious problem. He is ready to die. He is on the verge of death. He's that close to dying, very much like Jairus' daughter when Jesus was sent for to raise her up from her sickbed. The man is sick and ready to die. I think it's just interesting. A centurion is a captain of 100 soldiers. We understand that. A captain of 100 soldiers in the Roman army. That, this is not a small position. And yet, the Bible doesn't say he was sending that his captain might be made whole. He wasn't sending that his brother or his mother, his child, his servant. This ought to tell us a little something about this man. I don't think he's your average centurion. He is concerned that one of his servants is about to die. Undoubtedly, he was near to this servant. He was dear to him. But this is the situation. He's concerned that his servant's about to die. I want to put more emphasis, though, more on where this centurion is from than the problem he's facing and the petition he'll give. But we'll, we'll focus in on his petition here in a minute as well. But notice where the centurion lives. Where is he at? He is in Capernaum. If you study your Bible, does anybody know anything which should stand out to us about Capernaum? And if not, that's okay. Capernaum was Jesus's. it's where he ministered much. Galilee is in Capernaum. Uh, and so the Lord Jesus, this is his almost like headquarters. He was in Capernaum. It's like the region. You have Judea, Capernaum. Uh, so he's here in Capernaum. Nazareth, his hometown, is from Capernaum. And so he's there ministering in Capernaum. But what I want you to notice this morning about Capernaum is in Matthew chapter 11. Turn there if you would. Capernaum was not known for being a place of great faith. I mean, you think this. If you went this morning to the southeast, all right, so you're going to go south of the Mason-Dixon line, and you're going to come in just west of the Atlantic seacoast. You're going to be in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, you're going to be in, in the hills of Tennessee, on down into North Georgia, and maybe in parts of South Carolina, up into, uh, you get above the Mason-Dixon line, even a little bit into Kentucky and some of these areas. You might know what we call that part of the world. It's the Bible Belt. So you would expect to find great what in the Bible Belt? In great faith and surely great preaching. You'd think both. I've lived in the Bible Belt. I'd love to tell you there's great faith there. There's a lot of Bible knowledge in the Bible Belt. I can't report to you there's a lot of great faith. I wish you could. I'll be honest with you. I've lived in both parts of the country. I've lived in the South. And I'm not here to rip on any part. I, I love people there, family there, friends there. But the generosity of God's people is exceedingly greater in the inland northwest than it is in the Bible Belt. People's willingness to give to missions, 
people's willingness, I'll be honest with you, support of the local church. We have folks in this church, you drive 30 to 40 minutes multiple times a week to be in church. And I know people in the Bible Belt that will not drive more than 10 to be there more than once a week. And that's, I mean, that's common. So, oh, I had a friend one time, he said, oh, I can't find a good church close. And the closest thing I can find is like 15, 20 minutes. And I'm trying not to laugh out loud. Like, are you serious? Man, you should be there every day. <laughs> 15, 20 minutes. I live 15 minutes from the church here, and I pastor the place. 45 minutes from Walmart. Praise God. That's wonderful. <laughs> But the point is, you would think in the Bible that you have great faith. Wouldn't you think at the center of Jesus' ministry, you have great faith? Wouldn't you think Nazareth would be a place of many miracles since he was raised there? One might think that, but it wasn't the case. Familiarity often breeds contempt. Matthew 11, verse 20, Then began he to upbraid, that means to rebuke sharply and firmly, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of the, his mighty works were done. Can we go back and read that again? Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And here they are. Verse 21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you... This is, this is one of those powerful statements in your New Testament... For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Verse 23, and thou, hold on, where are we here? Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Can you imagine that? Jesus says, Capernaum, you are in worse trouble with God than Sodom. How so? Because to whom much is given of the same is much required. You've been given most of my mighty works. The Lord, by the way, if you fall for the line of thinking that if people could see miracles today like they were performed in the book of Acts or in the Gospels, we'd have more people getting saved, think again. Think again. The man in hell thought the same thing. The rich man in hell, he said, if someone rose from the dead and went back and told my five brethren about hell, they would repent. And you know what Abraham told him? They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them meaning they have the written word of God. Let them hear the written word of God. And he said, no, no, no. If someone rose from the dead, if they saw a miracle, then they would believe. And he said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither would they hear if one rose, raised from the dead. If you won't believe the Bible, you could see someone resurrected from the dead and you'd still be an unbeliever. And we have more than the law and the prophets, don't we? We have Moses and the prophets and the New Testament uh, accounts of the Gospels and the epistles and the book of Revelation. And I'm going to tell you something, sad to me, more Bibles preached in the United States of America today than probably any country on earth and less repentance is taking place than any country on earth. And don't you think for a moment we'll not be held more accountable. If the things done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, the Lord Jesus said they had repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You say, what does this have to do with our message today? Everything. Guess where this centurion's from? 
Capernaum. He is from a place that is known for its what? Characterized by its what? Unbelief. Jesus did so many mighty miracles among them, and yet they still did not believe. It says that in John 12 after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Though he did so many miracles, yet they believe not. And so, yet, we live in a place that's much like Capernaum, exalted to heaven. Well, how proud we are of what a great nation we are. And by the way, I am thankful for our nation. Please don't misunderstand me. But I'm not thankful for pride. It'll bring us low. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is it possible for someone who lives in a hotbed of unbelief to have great faith? Oh, yes. Do you and I have to say, well, we're Americans, we're just unbelieving like that? No, don't have to. Here's a centurion living in the midst of a city that had seen Jesus, of a region that had seen Jesus do numerous miracles. He had done so many miracles among them, and yet the majority of Jesus' own people in his hometown of Nazareth, they tried to take him to the brow of the hill and kill him because he was from there. And they were offended because they said, we know his mother and his brethren and his father, Joseph. They rejected who he was. Yet here's a man living in the midst of a place known for its unbelief, condemned by the word of the Lord Jesus Christ for its unbelief, yet a man of great faith. I believe, and I'm going to speak broadly for a moment before we get further into this, just because America has by and large, the United States of America has by and large as a nation rejected the word of God, rejected the Son of God, replaced the truth of God's word with secular humanism and philosophies of men, as we prefer that over the truth of God, does not mean we can have people of great faith in our midst today. This centurion lived in the middle of a corrupt culture, a corrupt religion, corrupt politics. You'll see it right here. These men were used to getting favors by saying, hey, yeah, he's a stranger, but we should be good to him because... Didn't they? Were they following God's law when they tried to appeal to Jesus that way? Had he not said care for strangers anyway? Couldn't they say, Lord, come help this man. He's a stranger in our country, and we know your word tells us you care about strangers. But they didn't appeal to him that way. They were not men of faith. But they were the only people that this man knew and how to get a hold of, in contact with Jesus. You know what this, you know what this Gentile centurion understood? I'm a Gentile. He's a Jew. I'm not really supposed to contact him. I will respect him. I will respect who he is. I will respect his religion. I will respect whatever. Now, here's a man who, who is a man of great faith in God. And you'll see he did not personally approach the Lord Jesus because he wanted to try to get a favor done, but because he saw himself unworthy to be in the very presence of Christ. And so let's go ahead. We see the, the problem he had. He had a sick servant, nine to death. His place, he's in Capernaum, a place known and condemned for its unbelief, his petition. Now let's look again in Luke chapter 7 uh, in verse 3. It says, uh, let me get there. Luke 7 verse 3. And when he heard of Jesus, again, how did he know about Jesus? When he saw him? Same way we do. He heard of him. As far as we know, this man never physically laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as the record of Scripture is concerned, he got grace from Christ the exact same way you and I do, without ever physically laying eyes on him. He never felt a touch from him. He, if you met the centurion today and say, what does Jesus look like? You'd have to say, I really couldn't tell you. I never, I never met him in person. Has he ever done anything for you? Oh, my. Did a miracle in my home. So let's look at the petition. Verse 3. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, uh, beseeching him that he would come 
and heal his servants. So here's the thing. He's a Gentile, and he says, you know what? He had a good relationship with the Jewish leaders, the elders, those who normally hated Christ. He had a good relationship, and he said, you guys come. I need, I need help. I need to talk to Jesus, but he's a Jewish rabbi. I'm not sure he'll hear me, but he'll hear you. You know what he's doing? He's asking for a mediator. He wants the elders of the Jews to go and mediate for him. You're Jews. He's a Jew. If you go ask him, I believe he'll do this miracle for me. Uh, And yet, it could look like, from the Lord's perspective or our perspective, he's playing politics when we get in the next few verses. We see his concern, the place where he's at, the problem he had, the petition he gave. He wants his servant healed. That's very clear. Verse 4, we get into his command. By his command, I don't mean the soldiers that were under him. I mean the command of respect the man had. How often are you going to find in this economy of time Jewish men doing favors for Gentile Roman centurions? There was tremendous animosity between the Jewish people and the Roman government. Tremendous animosity. You see that all played out at the crucifixion of Christ. The closest they ever came at being unified was in the killing of the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who couldn't get along with each other, boy, they unified over the crucifixion. The Jews and the Gentiles who couldn't get along with each other, boy, they unified over the crucifixion. Today, you know what's going to unify our world? You read the rest of the book, you'll find it's not love of Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist you find in 1 John and 2 John and so forth that unifies a lost and godless world. And so then, so any unity outside of Christ is false unity. It's either for him or against him. Will he be unified for Christ? or unified against him. But verses 4 and 5, we see the command this man had in his community. By that I mean influence. Look in verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, the elders of the Jews, they besought him instantly. So they, they are, Lord, we need, we need your attention now, please. There's a, there's a troubling matter. They besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy. What is their report about this man? He's worthy. He deserves this. He was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation and he hath built us a synagogue. They looked at grace the way most false religion looks at grace. This man has done good works. He deserves for you to do a work for him. He's done some things for our nation. So they appealed to Jesus from an ethnic standpoint. Uh, he has done some things. He loves our nation, Lord. And they appeal to him from a religious standpoint. He built us a synagogue. Be kind of like this. Uh, Pastor, we got somebody that is uh, uh, that needs to talk to you. And uh, they're, they're not a member of this church, but boy, they are. They have contributed multiple times. Oh, well, I otherwise wouldn't have time, but please, I'll make two hours for them today. Is that right? That is not right. No, that's not the right way to go, but that's how they're appealing to Jesus. They are appealing to him the same way they would be appealed to. I don't have time for a Gentile unless he does something for us. You know what they're saying? We were willing to represent him because he loves our country. And we were willing to represent him because he built us a synagogue. Is that the kind of law that God wrote back there in Deuteronomy chapter 10 of being no respecter of persons? Did the Jews treat all Roman centurions like this? Then why did they treat him like this? Because he did favors for them. Now we'll find he did what he did out of a sincere heart. I believe he built a synagogue out of a sincere heart. You know how we can say that? Because the kind of man he was. It seems to me he's appealing to Christ out of a sincere heart. They are misrepresenting this man, but it tells us something about the man. It tells us he had a tremendous influence upon these Jewish elders, but it also tells us something about them. As we just look at this adding of the influence he held, clearly he was a, a generous man. Clearly he is a man that was himself a just man. You know what I believe he saw? 
the God of the Jews is the real God. I'm willing to build a synagogue for you. You serve the true God. He's not a pagan, was he? No. He built them a synagogue and so forth. And so uh, the, the idea would be, though, if you stopped reading here, you might think, oh, this is how you get favors from God. Give a little extra money in the offering plate. Um, build a church building. Um, donate something here. How I mean, you know most people think this way? This is how you get God to do things. You do nice things for God and his people, and God will do nice things for you. Well, if we didn't have the rest of the story, we might think that. Look at verses 6 through 8. Now notice this man's confession. We've seen the command he has by the influence he had on these Jewish elders and the influence they're trying to pull for him. He very clearly has won their trust, uh, at least as he's won their favor. The Bible says in verse 5, or verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, so he's almost to the man's house, the centurion sent friends to him. Now these are just acquaintances saying unto him, Lord, so the man is communicating through his friends, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. Uh, and they that were, and when Jesus heard these things, we'll get into verse 9 here in just a moment. Verse 6 through 8. In this man's confession, do you notice the contradiction he gives? They say of him, he's worthy. Lord, he deserves this miracle. What does he say? I'm not worthy. Now, I can't, I can't tell you that this happened. But as we read the Bible and you think through how life happens, you wonder if he sat there and thought, I know what they're going to go tell him. They're going to go tell him he deserves a miracle. They're going to go tell him he built us a synagogue. They're going to go tell him that I like their nation and he's going to think that I'm an unjust man. He is going to think that I think I deserve him, this great son of God, to do something for me. I've got to set the record straight before he gets in my house and gets the wrong idea. And so before Jesus gets to the house, he thinks better of having sent the elders. And he says, no, you, my friends, you, uh, John, Bill, you guys, God... Catch him before he comes in the house. He is too great of a man for me to have in my home. I am not, I don't even deserve to have him step under my roof. And you know what? He's clearing up the, the elders of the Jews in their unbelief represented the man falsely. The only way they knew and say, hey, he deserves this miracle. He sends friends and says, I want to clear the matter up. I'm going to give you my assessment of myself. I am not worthy. Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. So let me be very clear. I didn't send the elders to you because I thought somehow they would show that I deserve this. Quite the opposite. I sent them because I knew I wasn't worthy to make a personal appeal. It'd be like this. If you wanted a personal, uh, a personal meeting with a, with, a, with a very powerful individual, let's say the President of the United States, you would probably try to find someone who understands how those things work to represent you. You want to go represent yourself in court, you can. You can do that. But often it's advised you better get an attorney or someone might dismiss what you have to say. Are you with me? Someone who has greater ability to communicate and work as an advocate for you. And this man says, I want to make something extremely clear. I did not send the elders because I thought I was worthy. Somehow he figured out what they'd told Jesus. 
He said, I want to make sure you, Lord, have the right idea. I don't deserve anything from you. I didn't think I was fit to come into your presence. Obviously, you are a far, far, far greater man than I. He understood he's the Son of God. He had heard of Jesus, who he was. And I wonder today, is this our attitude toward Christ? Can I help you with something this morning? There are some, there are some. I am, I am not the Lord, but the Lord gives discernment. There are some in this room and you have a bitter spirit about you. Something has eaten at your soul. I'm going to tell you what bitterness is. It's the epitome of pride. I don't deserve the lemons I'm getting in life. I don't deserve some of the things that have happened to me. I deserve better. Help us with something this morning. That attitude will never get grace from God. Never. How many of us have had some disappointments in our life? You know, isn't it easy to look at somebody else's life and say, well, you don't understand my life because you've never had my disappointments. Normally, you say that to somebody that knows disappointments far more than you could ever imagine. Because people that aren't made bitter by their disappointments have either never had them, and if they've lived past 10 years, they've had some. They've either never had them, or they've learned how to depend on God to lead them through them. Amen? There are no perfect lives in this world. The perfect life is in heaven. No perfect life here. And life in this world is either going to drive us to God or from God. Some of you this morning need to take assessment. Is your life driving you from God or to God? I don't mean to be unkind. I won't pry any further. But the fact of the matter is, life is going to do one of two things. Here's a man that he could have said, I don't... I've been good to my servant. I'm one centurion that actually loves my servants, and I'm losing one. What is up with that? Why me? (laughs) Right? Most centurions would beat their servant to death and go buy another one. I actually care. Why do these things happen to me? You with me? Instead, he said, I'm not worthy that the one who can fix this for me should even hear my voice. I wonder if we bow our knee in prayer in mourning. Though we know we can come boldly, we are keenly aware that if God gave us what, he, what we deserve, He'd shut His ear to us forever. Is this not true? How many have always loved God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength and obeyed Him 100% from the heart? And I'm not advocating we don't. We should. But the fact of the matter is, why should He listen to us? Why should we have an audience with God? Why should we uh, be able to bring our petitions to Him in the first place? This man understood, I wasn't worthy personally to come into your presence, so I sent the elders of the Jews because I felt that they were worthy and I was not. And then by the time he gets to his house, he says, but I need to communicate this to you so you understand my heart. I'm not asking for you to do a miracle because I deserve it. I'm asking it because I believe you are gracious and you have the authority to do it. We can learn so much about authority in this lesson. This man who's under authority understood authority. Most people don't understand authority. People that don't have authority think they want it so they can make everybody else do what they want for them, right? People who have authority generally wish they didn't. (laughs) Amen? You figure out what it's about. It's like, no, let somebody else do that. (laughs) Here the Lord Jesus has how much authority? All. And this man understood it. Faith rests upon the understanding that Christ has all authority. This man understood everything in the universe was under his command. So he understood. And if you say the word, it has to obey. If you tell the sickness to depart from my servant, it'll have to go because the universe is under your command. 
See, is that what he believed? It has to be. Let's read it. His confession, number one, we see his assessment of himself. He says, Then Jesus went with him, and when he was now not far from the house, in verse 6, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Then we'll listen to his appeal to the Lord. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Do what now? All you have to do is say it. If you command it, it'll be done. Then he explains himself. For I also am a a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And the man's saying, "Here's, here's what I'm sure of. I understand how authority works. When you have authority delegated to you, those under your authority have to do what you say. If I have a soldier under me and I say, you go here, he goes. Because I've been authorized to command his life. And if I say to my servant, go here, he does it. I get authority at a very small level. So I understand, Lord, because of knowing who you are, I know that if you just say the word, it's done. That means he believed everything was under Christ's command. The, the, the healing of his servant's body. This is, this is where we balk. We often say, who do you believe Jesus is? Well, I believe he's the son of God. We are quoting what the Bible says. We know, we believe what the Bible says. But have we appropriated the faith we actually have? Do we actually believe he's the son of God? Do we believe that the devil actually has to obey the Lord Jesus Christ when Christ commands him? Do we believe that? I think sometimes the devil is nothing more than an excuse for us to sin and blame in our flesh and blame it on him. Sometimes the devil's not within a hundred miles of us. We just like sin and want to blame somebody else. So I can't blame my dad and my mom and my sister and my brother, so I'll just blame the devil. The devil wasn't in, involved in that other than introducing sin into the world. Well, here's what happens, though. If you and I say, you know what, I, I have a need. My need is weakness and temptation. But Lord Jesus, I know with the word you have power to overcome what I cannot. You know what this centurion had? He said, I'm in control of soldiers. I'm in control of servants. But I don't have the power to say to my servant, get better. I'm a man. I don't have that power. But I know you do. You know what the Lord's going to allow in our lives? And don't despise them. Circumstances that you and I cannot control. So we'll have to turn to him. You know what? Who, who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? I want hands. Who can say that? That's a proverb. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin, I have personally purged myself of all sin, I am now a, a glorified saint? Can't. It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? We know the answer. Well, then how do we get our hearts clean? The Bible says he's washed us from our sins in his own blood, Revelation 1.5. By faith in his blood, he can deal with our sin account. How many of you have the ability to go to the books in heaven and wipe your sins off the book? It's out of our control. We put them there. We can't get them off. But he can. Your salvation is saying, Lord Jesus, I cannot. I cannot get myself in such a condition that I am deserving of heaven but I know you have the authority to do that. Because you said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Does he have authority to forgive sins? He doesn't. No other does. 
I can't forgive your sins. You can't forgive your own sins. I hear this all the time. I've got to forgive myself. I, I, I think I understand what that means. I've got, look, if you've been forgiven by God, let God's forgiveness apply to you and accept that forgiveness. But the only way you can forgive yourself is if you're the only person you sinned against. Right? Every sin is against who? God. Then only God can forgive sins. And you know who has the authority to do that? Jesus Christ. He said, if any man thirsts, let him take the water of life freely. He has the authority to give you eternal life. Just as he had the authority to heal this man's servant. You may say, I am a spiritual cripple. I'm going to tell you something. There are times that church, and I like this. This is not a downstatement. Church feels like a spiritual triage unit. <laughs> a lot of wounded people coming around. You know what sin does to people? And it's not always your own sin. How many of you ever have been sinned against? You know what sin does? It wounds. But you know what? We know the great physician. Now, do we really believe he has the power to heal a wounded heart? Does he? You know what this centurion knew? He had absolute confidence in Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, I don't need you to come lay a hand on him. I don't even need to see you in person. It, your word is enough. And you know what? He got a hold of something before you and I ever... He, he could have... Do you realize this man could have seen Jesus? If he hadn't stopped him outside of his house, he actually could have laid hands on him. But he didn't feel he was worthy of that. Let me ask you this. I wonder if Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church... Can I make another application this morning? I wonder if Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church says, Lord, we're doing everything right. We deserve a revival. I mean, we meet at 10 and 11 and 6 on Sunday. And then we meet again on midweek. And Lord, we're going out and we're sowing the seed of your word. Now, all those are right and good to do. We're not going to stop doing them. But if we ever get the mentality, and we're worthy of a miracle. No. When we've done those things which, which are our duty... What are we supposed to say? We're unprofitable servants. We've done that which was our duty to do. You know what? Reading my Bible, if I read my Bible every day until the day God calls me home or the Lord returns, am I, am I a hero spiritually or am I just a faithful servant? If I pray without ceasing and you pray without ceasing, meaning you don't have seasons of your life where you quit praying, you keep praying, trusting God, are you a spiritual giant? Or we're we just doing our duty. If we not, if we refuse to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, even though others may, are we spiritual giants or are we just doing our duty? May I say this? We get miracles from God by faith, not by tweaking some kind of a justice system to say we are more deserving of a miracle than the next guy. You see, this man didn't believe what the Jewish elders believed. They say he has earned a miracle. And he says, no, I haven't. I have not. I've not even earned a hearing with you. I'm asking because I know who you are. I'm not, don't lose me this morning. We're about done. I'm not asking because of who I am. I'm asking because I know who you are. I have a little bit of an understanding of who you are because of who I am. I have soldiers and servants who do what I tell them because they are under my command. They were put under my command by others who are in authority over me. And I understand God has put all authority under you. And I understand with one word, all you have to do is command. And my servant will have to get better. The Lord says, that is great faith. When we, based upon who we know through the word of God Jesus is, appeal to him, 
based on the confidence that he is who his word says he is. And that his word, may I say this, his word spoke all this into existence. That he can do anything with it he chooses with the word of his power. And so then this morning, his, his assessment of himself, I'm not worthy. His appeal appeals to the authority of Jesus Christ and his confidence that you have the power in your word to heal this man. May I say this? That, I'll say it again, is what salvation is. I have confidence that because Jesus is the Son of God, he already paid for my sins. He is alive from the dead. And if I asked him right now, he would wipe my sins away and make me his child. That's what the Word of God says. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. Look at verses 9 and 10. We come to the man's commendation. We've seen his concern, his command, speaking of his influence, his confession, his assessment of self, his appeal to the Savior, and his assurance in the power of Christ and the authority of the Lord. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith No, not in Israel. There goes that two-edged sword. If you are one of the Jewish elders, you know what you just had done to you? He said, I marvel at this man. I only find a couple times in Scripture Jesus marveled at anybody. And he marveled at great faith and he marveled at unbelief. How could I do such miracles? And I'm not believed, but he marveled at this man's faith. I would love to make the Lord marvel, wouldn't you? I cannot believe the level of trust. Let me ask you something. Is this man's trust complicated or simple? It's simple, isn't it? I've heard who you are. I believe it. Therefore, you have the power to deal with something I have no power over. I have no power over this, but you do. And you know what? He got his miracle, didn't he? And he did. The Bible says Jesus marveled at him and commended him. with the, How many of, Let me put it like this. Let's say you had a class full of students. Okay, You got a class full of young people. And they're all sitting there, and they've been in this class and under this teacher for uh, two semesters. And they've got a couple more semesters. That's a two-year class. They've got a couple more semesters to go. And all the students are doing okay, and they halfway listen to the teacher, and they halfway take notes, and they halfway study for a quiz. And they, they're just not interested in the subject. They're not interested in the content. They, they yawn through all the classes. And then some student from Eastern Europe shows up. He's an exchange student. And he sits in class, and the teacher is very frustrated with his students. They, they don't care about the content. They couldn't care less about what is being taught. Uh, I'm pouring into this lesson, trying to teach them. And, and here you are. You have such, such tools at your disposal, and you couldn't care. And then this Eastern European exchange student shows up who barely speaks the English language, and, man, he is just sitting glued to this class, taking notes and writing down and getting A's on everything. And the teacher has been telling the students, you guys are slothful, you are careless, you're, gonna, you're not going to get anything out of this class, shame on you, and all they're doing is just upset, you know. But then the new student comes in and he starts excelling. And the teacher stands one day and says, I want to commend, and he names the student, for the diligent effort he is pouring into this class. I've not seen children from this country as interested in my U.S. history class as this stranger who's come in among us. What just happened to all the students that have been in that class for two semesters? They got a, mm. <laughs> am I right? When Jesus said, what faith? I've not found this kind of faith in Israel. Everybody else standing around is from where? They just got a big rebuke. 
You need to learn from him. What did the man do? He had confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. He had confidence. In, you, know what the, you know what the men of Israel were saying? Jesus had raised the dead, opened blinded eyes, healed the sick. I mean, he literally did all of this. We have to remember, miracles were as miraculous then as they are now. He had done all this. You know what they said? Show us a sign and we'll believe. Are you kidding? What else do you need? He turned five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And you say, show us a sign? Even some of his disciples felt that way. And here's a man who didn't even ever lay eyes on him. And he said, I know with just your word, you can heal my servant. Friend, that's great faith. When, here, let's get practical. When you can open your Bible, and the Bible says, and you know your Bible didn't come from some man with creativity, it came from God. And he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And you say, I'm going to claim that verse as my own. I don't know how this, I don't know what decision to make here. I don't know what's the right way for me to go in my job, in my, in this aspect of my life. I've got some things that have me stumped. I don't know, but I know a God who promised me that if I lack wisdom, he would not upbraid me. He would not rebuke me for being ignorant. If I would own it, he would give me wisdom. And you get on your knees and say, God, you promised me wisdom if I would ask. And because you're God, I know you're going to give it. That's faith. Mueller used to pray with his Bible open. He'd pray scripture verses. He would pray something like this. Lord, you promised to care for the fatherless and the widow." And I have a thousand orphans in my orphanage, or how many ever he had at the time. And Father, you know they don't have food for breakfast this morning. But God, you promised me, and you promised them to feed them. And I know you're going to provide. That man built, I wish I'd written the number down. I want to think it's $83 million worth of property, debt-free, never asked another human soul for a dime. He did it all on his knees. You know how? He believed God just like this centurion did. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not saved. That's how you'll get salvation. Christ saves you through his word. You go to him and say, Lord, you promised if I believe on you, you'd save me. He'll do it. It's that simple. But you're here this morning, you're a Christian. You say, I got something complex. You know why it seems complex? Because it's out of your control. But it's not out of his control. Now, I understand the wills of other people get involved. I understand that. But how many of us know the emphasis here is God's willing to care for the stranger. But you know what the stranger's part is? Faith, I've got to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I've got to take him at his word. Do we need to see a sign to believe him or do we have his word? We have a word full of promises you and I can lay hold of and say it's your word and I'm going to go to the bank on your word. Amen? And so his commendation, the Lord commends him not only for the sake of those around him but for us today. The Bible says in verse 10, And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant. What? whole that had been sick. He's commended in two ways. The Lord's word itself commended him. You know what? When you live a life of faith, you know what the Bible will do? It'll quit condemning you and it'll start commending you. It's a two-edged sword. The same words that condemned the Israelites commended the stranger. Isn't that amazing? The same, I marvel at this man's faith. I've not found so great faith, not in Israel. How do you think the elders felt about that statement? Well, thank you, Jesus, for putting us down like that. We appreciate you dealing with your kinsmen like I mean, we're Look at we are your relatives, and you know what you just said about us? We are from your part of the world, and you know what you just said about us? 
We are in the same religion. And you realize what you just said about us? You treat strangers better than you treat Israelites. You're probably a Gentile yourself. But then the centurion heard those words, and is that the effect it had on him? I've not found so great faith. How do you think that made him feel? Well, glory to God. And I don't have to be a Jew to have access to the grace of God. I I don't have to have the right genealogy. I don't have to have the right family. I don't have to have the right whatever. I simply trusted Him and He did what He promised He would do. Two things commended the Word of Christ, but the work of Christ. What Christ did. So this man got his prayers answered, didn't he? (laughs) The power of Christ was in his life. You know what? We, We look for what is the mystery to the power of Christ? Faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's rewarded him to diligently seek. So what is faith? Believing God's word. <laughs> you know what? This man first heard of Jesus. And when he cried him, what did he call him? Lord. He had heard who he was, hadn't he? You know what the key was, though? Unlike his Jewish friends, he believed it. He actually believed that man is exactly who I've heard he is. He's the Christ. He said, Lord, if you just speak the word, it'll be done. Do we believe that today? Do we believe God will honor his word and that he, with the power of his word, all he has to do is say, this is what I want done. I believe there's things you and I can fight against for decades and work against it and try. And finally we say, Lord, I can't. This man realized, I can't help my servant, but I know who can. And when he appealed to him that way, on that authority, he got a miracle from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in an age, we need the Lord to move and give us some miracles. Would you agree? We have battles we fight, we lose. We have servants that are sick and nigh death. <laughs> we need the Lord's favor. We need His grace in our lives. But we have it by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, are you saved through faith? His part is grace. Our part is Faith, I'm willing to take you at your word for who you are. You know what? A man's, a man's word is no better than his power to perform it. Someone can promise all day, I'll make you a new creature. But if he's not able to perform that, what good is it? We can quote 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, things, all things become new. But do we really believe he has the power to make a man a new creature? Can he make someone a different person? With his word, he can. And that's what we need. Mm-hmm. 